Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the radio show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we always do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Paul Sieslak. He's returning to us, an infectious disease specialist and medical director for the Oregon Public Health Division's Communicable Disease and Immunization Programs. Also returning will be Dr. Eustace Fernandez, a critical care physician and pulmonologist who runs an ICU and COVID unit at a hospital in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And Tom, any of our guests who listen regularly will recognize those names, and they know that they're in for a treat listening to these great minds talk. But oh, first, we want to. <laughs> but first, we want to provide a follow up to I think a really moving story that we told back in early September about Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Uh, when students arrived there back on campus uh, in August, COVID cases were initially really low, but then, as they have in many places, they spiked. And this caused a great deal of concern in the county health department, as you can imagine, and it almost caused them to shut down in-person classes. However, President Steve Menace, a great man, told us about how the campus and the faculty and the students all came together to create a plan to help keep the college open for in-person classes. Those students all arrived home last week for Thanksgiving with their families and are taking final exams this week, the week after Thanksgiving. President Steve Minnis has returned to give us the good news of how Benedictine College was able to flourish when many other schools have stopped in-person instruction in the face of the pandemic. Steve, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Well, thank you. Appreciate you being, you asked me to give you an update on what happened to Benedictine this year. Right, because uh, we had a great discussion on September 8th, the Feast of Our Lady's Birthday, and that show aired called COVID Goes to College. So picking up from then, how did COVID after that point impact your ability to function as a college? Well, it, your timing was unbelievable because you may remember on August the 28th, so at the end of August, uh, we had 66 active positive cases that day on August the 28th. That was our highest number of active cases we also had 150 people in quarantine. Wow. Uh, over 10% of our student body was out of the community on August the 28th. On that day, I, had, I went on video and asked the community to begin praying and fasting for, uh, for that things would get better at the college. And we asked them to do that until September the 8th, okay, on Mary's birthday, so because right. of devotion to her. And, and our, our, our kids really stepped it up. In addition to that, on that day, we also implemented, oh, I guess, stricter mitigation. We already, already had rules that you wear a mask, but we actually implemented a little stronger or more stricter guidelines to that and actually had to issue fines if we found people without masks. So we really stepped it up from that perspective. How hard was it to get the students to buy in? And what got them over the hump? Because I understand initially, some of them didn't want to buy in. Well, uh, that's that's exactly right. But, you know, when you have the county health department saying that they're going to uh, quarantine our students in their rooms for 14 days, if they don't, uh, if things don't get better, uh, that's pretty good incentive. I, so they all kind of started stepping it up. Now, I, I got to tell you, they're college kids. And so right. it was um, it was difficult for them to do that and to maintain that um, intensity throughout the entire semester. We started seeing uh, the last week or two of school, uh, students getting a little more lax with their mask wearing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but our numbers had already uh, dramatically gone down. And so uh, it wasn't that we had herd immunity in any, <laughs> it, it just that there weren't that many positive cases to spread it. So, so that helped. So going back on August 28th, remember we had 66. On September the 8th, which was the day we asked them to fast and pray till, was the day of our thing. We had 16 that day. But what was really fascinating, uh, doctor, is that what we noticed is that by the end of every month, great things were happening. So August 28th, we had 66. September 28th, a month later, we only had one active positive case. Wow. Uh, on October the 28th, we had zero, we had no active positive cases, no students in isolation on that day. And then by the end of November, by the time, uh, 
but we were ready to leave. The last day of school, we had three. So after August the 28th, our numbers just plummeted and they stayed low. I, I wouldn't say, but people use this word. We almost had created a bubble around campus um, and we were doing pretty well. In fact, after August, after October the 28th, when we were at zero, um, the only people getting COVID were people that had actually left Atchison and had gone to other activities and caught it there and brought it back with them. So there are states which are saying to their colleges, oh, our numbers are so high. This happened to, I have a daughter in Michigan. The governor of Michigan shut down all in-person classes because that's the place where students get it, right? Wrong. Uh, Tell us what you found. Well, you know, what we found is that the, the almost the two automatic things that officials are doing to try to stop the spread were things that weren't spreading at all. In fact, the uh, so usually people in authority say shut down school, shut down athletics. Those are two places where it was not being spread on our campus. In fact, the safest place on our campus was in class. Okay, so we we showed no spread in the classroom. No faculty were getting it. We had two faculty members. That, that tested positive, both of whom got it from uh, people in their home that were not connected to Benedictine College. Nobody, no faculty member uh, got COVID from our students and our students did not, it did not spread within the classroom. All of our students, all our faculty were, were masked the entire time. And even though it was inside, it was not spreading. How is the esprit de corps among uh, the students after going through this semester? Oh, what's that now? I'm sorry. How was the esprit de corps yeah. among the students? Um, it was, uh, you know, they were really together on this. They really wanted to get through the semester. We gave them a challenge. They did not want to go home. They'd been home for two and a half months. Uh, they love their families, but they were ready to get back with their friends. And so that's kind of our message for the second semester is let's start strong. Let's stay together, you know. And you're going to do some testing before they come back on campus, right? Right. So we wanted to start strong. What we found was this, that uh, when the school semester started in August, 37 people who are asymptomatic brought COVID with them. Now, we tested everybody once they came back to campus. But the problem was is that there was a 48-hour lag between test and results. So what happened is those asymptomatic folks who did not know they had COVID was pa were passing along uh, the virus to other students unknowingly. And so that's how our spread happens. So what we decided this time is we're not going to test everybody when they come back. We're going to ask everybody to test before they come back. So if they receive a positive uh, test result, don't come back until uh, they've, they've isolated and then they can come back to school. That sounds so wise. How has this experience affected your relationship with the town in the county where Benedictine College is located? Actually, interestingly enough, it's actually gotten stronger. We, uh, you know, our, our theme uh, in the first semester was stronger together, Atchison and Benedictine. And so we, <clears throat> you know, have meetings every morning with the county health officials. We send them our report every day so they know where we stand with the number of positive cases and stuff like that we would ask their opinion on different things. So we're a lot closer. Actually, in, in, in a way, <laughs> I know this sounds kind of not, not charitable, but what was happening is that the rest of the county actually had higher positive cases percentage-wise than the college did. Yes. So, uh, they had other worries than, than us after a while. Actually, I kept saying, you know, maybe you should quarantine <laughs> the rest of the city uh, and, and to keep them away from our kids. They, I thought it was funny. They, they didn't see me. They didn't like that. that. <laughs> a lawyer with a sense of humor. It's a beautiful yeah, right. thing, Steve. What final comments do you have for our listeners about college in the time of the COVID pandemic? Well, for us anyway, uh, we found out a small college makes a difference, right? Because what uh, it made a difference in, in, in the sense that it caused a, a spike early because these kids hadn't seen each other, they love each other, they were with each other and, the, and they caught it. But then you had the ability to tell them, this is what happens or what could happen to you if we don't get this under control. In addition to that, it, got, it was pr pretty quick 
what happens if you get COVID? You get sent to a hotel. They don't give you a key. (laughs) Your friends are all quarantined. That word gets out pretty quick and no one wants to get COVID. President Steve Minnis, thank you for being a shining example of how we can keep our schools safely open during this pandemic. God bless you. Sure appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Doc. You're welcome. Before I ask our trivia question of the week, uh, I'd like to just update you on something we're going to ask Paul and Eustace about. And there was this big study called the Danish Mask Study. It was actually a very well-designed study, but it was a study to answer just one question. And that is, does wearing a three-layer surgical mask, the kind you can buy at the corner drugstore, does that protect the person wearing it from acquiring COVID and do so to cut it in half of what the rest of the population's rate of getting it? That's all it's there to answer. But we're going to let him give us a thunder on that one. Also, this week, we pass 100,000 hospitalized patients with COVID in the country for the first time. Have you seen at your hospital, Chris, that this is becoming an issue? Absolutely. Just anecdotally, I'm running into, so to speak, uh, pregnant patients with COVID in labor uh, and that we didn't during the initial phases back in the spring. Now, the hospital where I practice is test every pregnant woman on admission. So, of course, we would expect to see a few more. But even taking that into account, we're seeing more and more COVID-positive patients. Yeah, even in my own practice, we're getting more and more employees who um, have COVID. Uh, And in fact, I looked, and uh, right now, Indiana, where we are recording, uh, is number three in the country in terms of hospitalizations for covid on a per capita basis. We are behind only South Dakota and Nevada yeah, uh, we're, a few we're days. Definitely, we're definitely in a, in a different place uh, than we were. I'm part of a Catholic uh, business owners organization and sitting around the table listening to business owners, they say what you said about their employees, that companies are being shut down, not because of shutdowns, uh, but because they have no employees to work because they're either positive or they're exposed. And uh, just this week, the CDC has reduced the amount of time for quarantines from 14 days to seven days if you get a test and don't have symptoms. You can get a test on day five, six, or seven. If it's negative, your quarantine is shortened. They have heard the cry of the people who are saying, we can't shut down our lives for 14 days multiple times. So they're they're trying to make it more user-friendly. It is. It's it's a tough time because we have, on the one hand, the statistics staring us in the face, and on the other hand, we're trying to function and uh, and, and remain human and remain open. Um, and it, it is. It's very tough. It's a hard hard thing to try to do to balance safety and um, and necessity at the same time. And uh, now uh, I want to ask our trivia question of the day. And I realize I just gave half of the answer away, but hey. Who, who am I to, to you know, it, it's a giving time of year. So I gave half the answer. So as of data available December 2nd, which two states currently have the highest and lowest number of hospitalized COVID patients on a per capita basis? Um, as a hint, both of these states rank in the lower half of states for population density. We'll have the answer, at least the other answer you don't know, at the end of the show. But we'll be back after the break here on Dr. Doctor with our guests, Dr. Paul Cieslak and Dr. Eustace Fernandez. We're back with our two guests, Paul and Eustace, who are going to enlighten us once again. And as a a preamble, I want to note that next week's episode will feature Dr. John Grabenstein, a vaccine expert with a return to Dr. Doctor, for an update on all things related to COVID vaccines. We will also have uh, Dr. Joe Zalot at the beginning of that show talking about the ethics of various vaccines. He works for the Catholic National Catholic Bioethics Center. The first question that I have for our guests, I will uh, ask Eustace. You know, Eustace, the media has given dire predictions regarding our hospitals being overwhelmed. But what are we in danger of running out of first? Is it ventilators? ICU beds, total hospital beds, or our doctors and nurses, um, the the weak link now, what we're running out of, those who can competently care with compassion for our patients. From a clinical standpoint, our greatest challenge appears to be staffing. 
We have plenty of ventilators. We have lots of PPE, which we talked on uh, talked about early on. Um, but losing staff members either to COVID nineteen illness or quarantining due to COVID nineteen exposure has limited our ability to care for all of the patients that enter our building. So I think having staff that is um, capable, ready to take care of patients and healthy enough to take care of patients is probably our greatest concern. COVID-19 care is also becoming a, a very specialized form of care from a nursing standpoint and a physician standpoint. So having people with the expertise to do those things, to provide that particular care is, is uh, becoming a challenge. Um, right now, um, another important issue I think that we are facing across the board and across the country from colleagues I talk to is burnout and the sort of psychological, spiritual toll of um, caring for critically ill patients with COVID-19 and otherwise, and assuming that risk is sort of taking its toll on our nursing staff, on our respiratory therapists, on our doctors, on our advanced uh, care practitioners. And it is something that is, I think, gonna have long-term implications for uh, a variety of people's career paths, and their job satisfaction, which is very important to the quality of care they can deliver on a day-in, day-out basis. Paul, would you like to add anything to that? Well, I, you know, my, I'm in public health, so I'm not uh, in the hospitals on a day-to-day -day basis. But uh, what Dr. Fernandez said echoes what I hear from our clinical colleagues. Uh, it's not a shortage of ventilators. It's not a shortage of beds. It's that uh, staffing is getting short and, and existing staff are getting burnt out. Do you, are you aware of any uh, reliable data that's looking at the in infectivity of healthcare workers? Uh, I've tried to find some, and I, I haven't been able to, to come across that, but I wonder in the ICU and some of these really intensive settings, how probable is it that a healthcare provider is going to contract the virus? You know, I think in the units that uh, have that uh, the, the kind of personnel who are trained to work with COVID-19 and who have been doing it for a while, I actually think the risk is is pretty low to the healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they they have all the personal protective equipment they need and they know how to use it. And uh, so I don't think it's that big a risk. I think it's actually uh, a bigger risk. Um, uh, perhaps in emergency departments where you have a lot of people coming in, some of whom may uh, be infected and symptomatic, some of whom may be there for other reasons, but uh, who are shedding the virus uh, with, without symptoms. And, and I think the, the risk might be greater in those kind of settings. Colleges. Some of my colleagues, I've seen posts on various medical websites that they believe that college students, since they have a 1 in 25,000 chance of dying from COVID, should just be allowed to live normally, no masks, no distancing, and let things spread. And these are, you know, faithful Catholic people. How, how would you respond to that, Paul? Uh, well, we do know that um, occasionally there are uh, outbreaks on college campuses. Uh, and, you know, when there is virus being transmitted from student to student, I, I really am not sure that it's possible to keep it from uh, spreading to the larger community as well. Uh, you know, to professors, starting with uh, professors right. or ancillary staff on the college campuses, uh, it, it would be interesting to see whether some colleges are able to do it successfully uh, without seeing uh, increasing cases in the larger community. But I, I'm pretty nervous when people uh, start um, from promoting the, uh, you know, let it rip uh, strategy of, uh, of, of dealing with the virus. Eustace? Yeah, I, I again, I would uh, agree with Dr. Seeslack. So I think that we could say that there are a couple of true things that that college students who get this disease are unlikely to get terribly ill from it. They're very unlikely to die from it. But the idea behind the let it rip philosophy is not really letting it rip, but it's, it's um, focused protection of people who are vulnerable. And if you are really not conscientious about who has it, um, isolating them quickly and protecting those who are most vulnerable, you really haven't done anybody any favors. I think as Catholics, we need to think about this not just as a question of liberty and personal autonomy, um, but it is a opportunity to show charity towards vulnerable people. It's an opportunity to show solidarity with people who are 
more vulnerable than a college student. And I think colleges um, in their educational mission have a real opportunity to instruct students about caring for their neighbor and, and, uh, and protecting the vulnerable. Yeah, and no insult to college students, but I think they often feel invincible, uh, at least the ones that, that I'm paying for to go to college. <laughs> um, and and they're, they're one of their greatest strengths may not be this sense of relative risk. You know, that yeah, relative to the 80-year-old with a lot of comorbidities, the healthy 25-year-old probably isn't at significant risk, but that's not the same thing as to say they're at zero risk. Uh, and I think we all probably know cases where someone who wouldn't fall out on a risk profile has become very, very ill with COVID, maybe not to their death, but maybe very, very ill. But that's a tough concept, I think, to get past, you know, some college students. I'd like to uh, move to a, a philosophical area, which I know both of our guests like to talk about, dealing with abstinence. But this time, the abstinence has nothing to do with physical intimacy. It has to do with public health officials recommending abstinence from Thanksgiving and Christmas celebrations. That's good, Tom, because you just scared our guests to death. <laughs> I'm good at that, yes. So uh, they were saying, you know, just say no. But yet, this is the same public health group that would never say that regarding physical intimacy outside of marriage. They will say, you know, which we don't recommend, but well, here's how to lower your risk if you're going to be intimate. But with regard to families getting together and, you know, 38% of Americans in one poll said, I'm going to get together with 10 or more people. I don't care. In other words, they're saying they want human friendship. Why aren't they saying, or do you think it's odd that they're not saying, well, here's how you can lower your risk. They just have this black or white thing. Paul, you're the public health official here. What, what do you think of that? Yeah, thanks a lot for that, uh, Tom. <laughs> oh, uh, you, but you didn't say this. You didn't say this. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, I do think that um, the message has been one of risk reduction. Like, uh, yeah, we, we anyway have not been saying don't get together with anybody. We've been saying limit your, uh, the size of your interactions, get together with at most one other household. Uh, that's pretty restrictive, you know, when you're, right. when you're talking about Thanksgiving and Christmas. And, you know, I don't know what your Christmas is like, but ours features... <laughs> Uh, caroling through the neighborhood. And um, we're probably not going to do it this year, uh, not because, you know, le less because uh, we don't think it can be done safely, uh, you know, staying far away from the people who we're caroling at, if you will, uh, <laughs> than, than um, scandalizing the neighbors, you know, who are yes. used to uh, seeing this public health guy and, uh, you know, would be shocked, I think, to see him with a group of people singing, which we, which we know can uh, expel potentially infectious particles uh, at greater distance. So, so we are saying, um, uh, take time to reduce your risk, uh, as opposed to, you know, abstain from all contact with people whatsoever. Eustace? Yeah, you know, all of this speaks to the, you know, the yearning of the heart to be with others, and a certain amount of disenfranchisement that young people have at not being with their elders. So I think there's an acknowledgement that has to take place there that these things are still important and they're important to the human fabric. I mean, I think uh, the social fabric. So we have to have a sense of the eternal, you know? I mean, not everything is COVID. There'll be a life after COVID where we have to understand one another again and, and, and develop intergenerational bonds again. I mean, I think one reason that people have such a hard time with this is that we have, you know, government officials, public health officials preaching this on one hand, um, but then being filmed, you know, unmasked at large family gatherings or, you know, doing interstate travel or doing things that they recommend that the rest of us do not do. Um, I was just looking through some of the things I had saved and I, I came across a fascinating interview with uh, Anthony Fauci, where he was talking about um, safe ways to hook up with people on Tinder you know, oh the my goodness. And how it was all calculated risk. But at the same time, we're telling families that they shouldn't be together. And, and for many people, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel human. And there's a, a natural instinct to um, rebel against that. Yeah, I think I would. I think we see that those of us who have college age uh, kids, especially, it's that inconsistency that leads to cynicism, that leads to sort of the behavior that we're trying to prevent. Um, and all of those inconsistencies really are challenging. 
Yeah, um, I would also add that within my pulmonary diseases clinic, I see lots of people who are medically frail. And I see the consequences of prolonged isolation, which, again, from a public health standpoint, may be a little bit hard to, um, to capture. But the sort of loneliness, the depression, the anxiety, the self-neglect, um, the suicidal ideations, all of those things I'm seeing more and more of as, as collateral damage of, of this pandemic. So at, the, at wanting to save time here, we had a number of questions we won't be able to get through. I just want to point out there is less risk than we thought at the beginning of getting things from surfaces, so we probably don't have to be too worried about pews and churches. Uh, there probably is a little more risk with some aerosolized particles being in closed places with people. But I want to move on. There have been studies about temperature, humidity, and the spread of COVID. And the question that was raised by the Washington Post and New York Times, should we increase the humidity uh, in our homes to try to reduce the spread of COVID, or is that not going to do anything? Paul Cieslak, do you have any insight into that? Um, well, sure. The, uh, the studies are difficult to do because they inevitably end up with what we call the ecological fallacy, uh, where you're trying to study uh, the effects of something on a group of people, and the group of people is inevitably uh, subject to, to different exposures uh, along a whole range of potential exposures than another group of people. You know, how prevalent is the virus, for example? And, uh, you know, if you're living in one climate, it's not just the humidity, but there's temperature and wind and all these other things. Um, I, I don't I, I don't feel much confidence in saying that by increasing the humidity within our houses, we're going to uh, have a, a a significant effect on COVID-19 transmission. And uh, the article that you shared with me, Tom, even pointed out the, the contradictory nature of some of the data that tried to look at geographic variation in, in viral transmission and, and uh, infer uh, you know, and make draw conclusions about uh, temperature and humidity from those. Th that said, I, I don't have too much trouble believing it. Um, you know, when they looked at this kind of thing for influenza uh, decades ago, they 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 arrived at, at sort of the same conclusion that um, humidity might be more important than temperature. Temperature, yes. That and that one of the things that uh, might facilitate the spread of influenza, which is so seasonal, you know, in the winter, is um, is people going indoors with the heat on. And, and that tends to dry out the air and, uh, and you know, make it less humid so that... Uh, Which is good know, for the virus. Right. Yeah. And, and you, you know, in Portland, <clears throat> Oregon, anyway, you tend to think it's more humid in the winter, right? It's raining all the time, except that when you're indoors and the heater's on, uh, it's not. And, and that might facilitate uh, viral survival. Last well, question. Well, while we're continuing to myth bust, as it were, uh, let's talk about quarantining just for a second. Um, my wife was quick to point out to me that it's actually better for you to be positive because you can get back to life faster than if you're just exposed. And following the quarantine guidelines has really been challenging, especially if you have young school age kids. But so we've been told that maybe the 14 day period could be uh, reduced, that uh, there's some studies looking at that. Could both of you update us on what you think uh, we're headed to next, maybe in terms of quarantines for isol for exposed versus positives? I'll, I'll jump in on that, Eustace. Um, uh, because we we have been hearing from CDC over just the last couple of days uh, that they that they intend to uh, publish a recommendation for uh, shorter periods of quarantine, and it's based on data uh, that are around transmissibility. You know how how uh, our, our likelihood of um, of coming down with COVID nineteen at a certain time following exposure. And uh, the suggestion was that uh, by the time you're out at 10 days, uh, your risk of developing COVID-19 is down in the 1% range. And so they think it might be uh, safe to sort of spring people, if you will, from uh, quarantine <laughs> uh, a, a little bit sooner. And then uh, possibly even a, a couple of days before that, if they, if they get a test and test negative, uh, I will say, I think it's going to be challenging systematically to mm -hmm. test everybody at a certain point following exposure and get the result back to them in a timely fashion uh, where it makes a big difference. But uh, if we can cut uh, the quarantine time, it'll be welcomed by a lot of people. That brings us to the end of the first half of the interview. Uh, we'll be back with more of Paul and Eustace after the break here on Dr. Doctor. 
abortion, pornography, embryonic stem cell research, corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we're back with Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios, uh, very, very safe virally at Redeemer Radio. <laughs> um, so thank you for sticking with us. So uh, let's move on to what we might call, you know, BAM. Um, we, we've, uh, we have, there may be a new way to reduce hospitalizations, uh, used to, so maybe you could talk to us about this new medication infusion. Right. So this is a, uh, monoclonal antibody. So this is an antibody, um, that, uh, prevents the virus from binding to the cell surfaces and entering the body and causing all of its damage in the body. And there have been some pretty studies um, that suggests that if we are able to get this into patients who test positive and are mild to moderately symptomatic and high risk, we may reduce their need for hospitalization from about 16% to about 4%, and then um, significantly decrease the amount of those patients who end up getting admitted to the hospital um, to the intensive care unit. So this unburdens um, the system, per se, in in two ways. Number one, it decreases the number of patients that need to be admitted to the hospital. That's critical. Number two is that it uh, reduces the need for use of critical resources. So ideally, you know, maybe in a perfect world, you'd give this to everybody who who is positive, but um, parsing out who the appropriate patients are is is really important. So um, there are criteria that the FDA has provided um, for who is appropriate uh, for administration of this of this monoclonal antibody. And these are the patients that we've talked about on previous shows who are high risk. These are our older patients, greater than 65 in age, higher body mass index. So we've talked about the poor outcomes of patients with um, who are significantly obese, um, uncontrolled diabetics, patients with underlying lung conditions or heart conditions all need to be considered as important candidates for this. And Eustace, for our listeners, I'll let you pronounce the drug. It's actually not BAM. No, it's BAM lenivimab. I think I got it right. Gesundheit. Yeah, exactly. So are these, <laughs> so, is this available uh, in our communities now? It is. It is. So it's very much like remdesivir in terms of the federal government buying up the supply from uh, Eli Lilly, which produces um, the drug, and then distributing it to the state, and then the state disperses it. So the requirements are that you have an outpatient infusion center where you can give uh, where you can give this infusion. So it's about an hour of infusion, and depending on how the patient does with it, they're observed for another hour uh, to four hours um, to make sure they don't have a reaction to it, and then they go home. And then um, to, to be clear, Eustace, also this is not a vaccine. Uh, not, it sort of sounds like a vaccine, but it's it not does. giving it to people that potentially are already infected. This is this is. For patients who have a positive test. This is patients who are actively infected in usually, you know, with duration of infection being seven, under seven days, generally speaking. Back to you in the booth, Paul Cieslak. Question. The Danish mask study, a lot of heat, not enough light on the internet about it. What does it prove? What doesn't it prove? Uh, well, you know, it, it was a really well-designed study uh, where they took several thousand people and uh, and uh, randomized them to using a mask in addition to whatever else was being recommended at the time. Uh, the transmission rate was pretty low, so I think that kind of reduces their power uh, to, to detect an effect. Uh, but the bottom line is they did not detect uh, a statistically significant reduction in uh in contracting illness on the part of people who wore the masks. Uh, so I think, you know, it's, it's a good study. Now, a, a big problem, though, with, with taking this too far is that we, 
are typically recommending masks not to protect you, but to protect the other person because it's it's blocking those uh, aerosols and droplets that are coming out of your mouth and nose uh, that that really is going to do the most effect. Uh, somebody could still cough on you and and cough into your eye, for example, uh, even if you have a mask on and and spread the virus that way. So. You know, those of us in public health still think that masks are useful uh, if everybody is wearing them. But uh, if you are wearing them and the people around you are not wearing them, uh, it, it has limited usefulness. Because I've seen you quote studies, uh, studies of multiple studies put together that show about an 85 percent reduction in cases with a combination of N95 and surgical masks and cloth masks, but that's in groups of people where a lot of people are wearing them, and it's not protecting the wearer in that particular study, correct? Well, right, and if, if, it's, if it's mandated on the population basis, then presumably uh, everybody is protecting everybody else, so it's easier to see an effect there. And, uh, you know, that plus the... Uh, data on the kind of aerosols that people produce and, and how much it takes, virus it takes to infect you, um, make us pretty convinced that uh, with this virus, at least, they're, they're effective. Let's go back to philosophy, gentlemen. C.S. Lewis made a type of prophecy years ago where he said that we might someday give up our freedoms in the name of science. You know, he said, I dread the government in the name of science. That's how tyrannies come in. Do you think that we've seen a tyranny of science? And if so, what do you think is an appropriate response to it? Well, um, have we seen a tyranny of science? I've seen science invoked a lot. I mean, you see science invoked to drive patterns of behavior and to, you know, say, well, it's okay for these businesses to be open. Um, but not these churches, and so on and so forth. So you have to ask yourself, does the science really support it, or is science simply being invoked? You know, an, an example I gave earlier was saying, well, it's okay maybe to um, take a risk with a Tinder hookup, but not see your mother for for Christmas. And, and that's not really science. That's an issue of values. That's an issue of uh, personal ethic and what society um, itself values. So so as Catholics, I think our, our idea is to have this, this idea of the eternal and the idea that we'll all stand before God and that the science um, we, we have is a fruit of God's creation. And we have to kind of employ that to, to, um, to create policy and to create an ethic within our society that values every human life that um, protects our vulnerable and elder brothers and sisters, and that continues to acknowledge that a social fiber has to exist, um, so that we remind, so that we're constantly reminded um, of of the great love God has for us and for the human family. So science alone is a blunt instrument, and only when it's infused with uh, with a, a personal ethic. Um, and in, in our case, we, we should hope that it's a Catholic ethic, and the rest of society should hope that it's a Catholic ethic. Um, then it can be truly good policy, because a Catholic ethic, even if you're a non-Catholic, will always value your life, no matter how old you are, no matter how infirm you are, no matter how many resources you consume, it will always see the reflection of the creator in every member of the, of the culture. So that's what we want to foster in light of science. And Paul, what is your understanding about how science has been used well or misused during this pandemic? Uh, well, first of all, I want to echo everything that Eustace said. Um, you know, science is a tool. It, it, uh, it can be used for good and it, it can be used for not good. I mean, we can use science to build nuclear weapons and destroy each other, or we can use science uh, to advance medicine and help each other. Um, the way that I see it being misused uh, in the context of COVID-19 is, is uh, put at the service of health as the only thing that we value. And, and 
you know, we value a lot more than health. And, you know, the governors know this, uh, if, if for no other reason than they have to answer politically, uh, for the lost education, the lost employment opportunities, the lost uh, socialization that we're talking about. All of those are other goods. And uh, when, when we talk about uh, government taking action to try to protect people from COVID-19, we, we have to balance that or, or weigh that in the context of what is it doing to these other goods and, and where do we weigh those goods. So uh, the Catholic who remembers that science can be a good thing uh, and respects what science can do, but who also has uh, Catholic values in mind, I think is on the right track. You know, I think we, we've said on this show with, in multiple settings that I, I like the way, Paul, that you said that. And what's, what I think has happened in the public discourse is it's become impossible for both of those positions to be right. So we can say that we're very worried about this pandemic and that we're also very worried about what happens with shutting down economies and taking kids out of school. It, it isn't a dichotomous choice there, but, the, you know, the public discourse has gotten so... Uh, so fractured that it's impossible to have both of those opinions. I think that's, that's done a lot of harm to us as a people. Paul, I want to ask you about something that came out this past weekend when the Supreme Court uh, overruled in New York uh, the ability to shut down churches while other um, public events and venues were open. And Tony Fauci came out and said, oh, there's going to be a big spread of cases now due to the churches. How would you respond to that? Uh, well, first of all, I'm, you know, I'm no lawyer, but, uh, but I'm not surprised by the Supreme Court's ruling because uh, the New York uh, law was clearly discriminating against churches. I mean, they were taking situations that had uh, maybe a similar risk of COVID-19 transmission uh, and saying the one is okay and the other is not. And, and really what we were just talking about. They were exercising a value judgment and not a scientific judgment. Uh, they were saying that uh, these businesses that we want to keep open are more important than churches keeping open. Uh, so, you know, my, my reaction is that um, when, when government institutes uh, these kind of restrictions, that they do it even-handedly and, and not try to impose their values on others. So is there a scientific basis for Tony Fauci's statement that, oh, there's going to be a big increase in cases spread now if they keep the churches open? Um, well, churches obviously can be a place where COVID-19 is spread. That said, I think, you know, people who go to churches, and, and Tom, you and I uh, wrote an article about this, if they're doing it and following the directions and uh, that, that, you know, you were one of the people who helped lay out uh, that going to church can certainly be done safely. And I think that um, Catholics who are going to church and who, you know, believe in um, in solidarity with their neighbors are, are actually probably less likely to spread the disease than similar groups of people congregating in a bar, for example. Mm. Well, let's move on to nursing homes. Uh, that's where the, the largest concentration of deaths due to COVID has occurred. Um, and it seems like we're living that great Barrington Declaration by default now in terms of the numbers hospitalized, numbers positive. And in fact, I get something every couple of days from the nursing home where my dad lives. I mean, there's, it seems like every couple of days there's another staff member who's positive or another assisted living member who's positive. Thank God there haven't been nursing home uh, people positive. But are we able, do we have the infrastructure to protect our nursing homes the way that the COVID is spreading right now? Either one of you. Well, I would say um, that the infrastructure may exist, but it needs to be hyper-focused on these areas of vulnerability. And, and we don't see that right now. You know, the, the great Barrington Declaration um, really does not take a clear-cut position on other uh, mitigation um, strategies within the community. So those need to be fully deployed. And then the testing strategy, I think, um, needs to be hyper-focused on the vulnerable populations, separating out the vulnerable populations, and, and placing workers who are either recovered COVID-19 um, patients yes. uh, with, with the vulnerable people or, or something. So, so the apparatus does not appear to exist at present time. I do tend to agree with you that from what we're seeing on the ground, it appears that the Great Barrington Declaration is 
playing out in a sense that um, that the disease is running its course, but it's not playing out in that we have not done uh, our jobs in terms of, of protecting the vulnerable members of society, which is what um, the entire intent of uh, the Great Barrington Declaration is, a huge right. chunk protect the vulnerable, but allow those who are low risk to continue to live. It seems like we're allowing everybody to continue to live, but have, have not um, protected our, our vulnerable. Paul? Yeah, I'm going to take a slightly different uh, take on this. Um, you know, w- we have tried very hard where, where I live to protect uh, people in nursing homes. I mean, teams of people went out and visited every one of them. Uh, whenever there's cases or, you know, we, we test everybody in the facility, uh, you know, multiple efforts at educating staff. It just seems to be a, a milieu in which it's very, very difficult to prevent transmission uh, once the virus enters the place. And of course, it can do so uh, through an asymptomatic uh, visitor or uh, or even, you know, young healthcare worker. You know, one of the things I told colleagues is the people I want most to vaccinate are 20-somethings who take care of 80-somethings um, because the 20-somethings spread the, spread the virus a lot and the 80-somethings suffer so much. Uh, so, uh, you know, I haven't seen that, it, that we can do it. Uh, you know, Eustace said, well, we haven't uh, built the infrastructure, maybe, uh, but I can say a lot of effort is going toward it, and, and I don't think we've succeeded in doing it so far. And until, until I could say, here's, here is here is uh, see it being done here and, and emulate it, uh, I'm, I'm going to wonder whether it can be done. You know, we touched a little bit about science alone can't drive policy. And I recently heard a, um, a webcast uh, with uh, Z-Dog MD and a Dr. Vinay Prasad in uh, San Francisco, uh, both self-described progressives, yet they said that science alone can't drive public policy. It should be a combination of science plus the values of the community. What do you think about that statement? Well, I think we've alluded um, to that earlier in our conversation. So, I mean, I think we, we would all agree that science um, does not exist in a vacuum and that it, ideally it should be informed by, uh, by our Catholic values, um, which, which um, mandate um, respect for each human life and for us to act um, out of respect and solidarity. So if our policy is built around those principles, then I think we're going to be in a good place. If, on the other hand, our policies are built around more utilitarian cons- um, constructs, like who's going to consume the most resources or, or how does this, how do we get through this with the, with, um, the most limited amount of damage to the economy, then you're perfectly willing to sacrifice uh, the vulnerable and the elderly and things like that. I mean, those policies become easier, um, you know, such as, you know, a, a famous article that I think was published in the Atlantic, why I hope I die at 75 by, by um, Ezekiel Emanuel, Ezekiel Emanuel, right? So the argument um, there is, is our public policy should be informed by this idea that once you stop producing, once you stop being um, of utility to society, you should stop seeking medical care. And, and those are the kind of values that we as Catholics have to push back at, against, and we have to use science um, to uphold the dignity of every human life. We have 30 seconds. What's your last take-home point for listeners, Paul Cieslak? Uh Well, I would say that um, while we wait for a vaccine and the prospects look good, uh, I think our Catholic tradition of solidarity can help us. Uh, I would ask uh, my fellow Catholics to have a heart for the very ill patients and the exhausted healthcare workers. Uh, Offer up your usually family get-togethers and maybe uh, celebrate a little bit more uh, quietly this year, uh, enjoying the blessed solitude that St. Jerome recommended. Paul and Eustace, God bless you. Thanks for being with us again on Dr. Doctor. And we're back from Dr. Doctor's break, and it's time for the answer to the trivia question, which is anything but trivial this time. Yes, which two American states have the highest and lowest per capita number of hospitalized patients with COVID. If you're Surprising, a player, that's the over and the under. The over and the <laughs> So the state with the lowest number of hospitalizations at 34 per million residents is Vermont. The highest, another sparsely populated state, 
South Dakota, with 643 residents per million hospitalized with COVID. So now you know. So, Chris, we're over to you with the top three takeaways from this episode. You know, it was a great discussion. Uh, when we've had these gentlemen on, they've always brought us terrific material. But I, I think at least three things uh, pop out to me for our top three. The first one is, is I would say, from your discussion, um, it's really possible to go back to college safely. Yes. Uh, and as we're encouraging our policymakers, we need to remember that. doesn't necessarily mean it's easy, but it can be done. It can be done safely. Uh, second, we would always benefit, all of us would always benefit from a Catholic ethic. And that's because whether you're Catholic or not, the Catholic ethic is always going to side with life. No matter yes. how small, how large, how seemingly insignificant, life matters. Uh, and then the third of the top three, uh, I like this idea that science alone can't drive policy, that it takes a value system associated with that science. And then, of course, the question becomes, what values? We would argue from a Catholic ethic, uh, life values and Catholic values. Um, but, but science alone just can't do it. Nope. And uh, I'm going to toss in uh, two little things I noticed that uh, Bamlanivinab has the potential to radically reduce hospitalizations. That's good news. And that the Danish mask study uh, just showed that wearing a cloth mask doesn't protect you a whole lot maybe, from getting the virus, but does, says nothing about how well the mask protects others from catching it from you. So please wear a mask and distance till we can get that vaccine. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And don't discount the, um, the peer pressure that you wearing a mask might have on someone next to you that sees you wearing it and they think, okay, I guess I'll put mine on. Thanks for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And please, please, please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. Be sure to rate our program when you're there because it helps others find us. And of course, be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.